Um, well, good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, my name is Matt Trent. I'm a member here at Christ the King and have the privilege of being able to um, speak God's Word to you this morning. Uh, speaking of God's Word, it's kind of funny as my printer ran out of dark ink, so the only ink color I had to print was dark red. So I guess I have a red letter version of my notes today for you guys. <clears throat> Well, as we've been going through the Ten Commandments, uh, we're reminded when we look at Exodus 20 that uh, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You know, following the commandments are something that we follow not out of some hope that we're going to be in a, in a right relationship with him, but it's because we've already been rescued. We've already been redeemed. But oftentimes when we go through the commandments, as I know that we've probably felt the last uh, two months, there's just a, a strong weight and a burden that comes on us uh, when we're confronted um, with the realities of our sin when we look at the commandments. And, you know, that's, that's part of the, of the design of it. Um, the other part of it is it's, it's supposed to help us to um, have some good practical application for our lives. So hopefully we'll have both of that today and it won't be too much of a beatdown. Um, but the first four commandments that we look at are primarily dealing with the love of God. And commandments 5 through 10 primarily deal with love for others. And as we've looked, each commandment is kind of given to us in its most severe form, right? We have murder, we have adultery, and others. And so we have this severe form, but then we realize that there's lots of other related sins that um, have to do with that. It's all-encompassing. The law of God is concerned with the attitude of our hearts. Jesus told the religious leaders to love the Lord your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and all of your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the greatest commandment. And his key point is that our love for neighbor is directly tied to our love for God and the condition of our hearts. If we look at the last five commandments, we may also see, and you may have noticed, that it goes from the most violent to the least violent. It goes from murder to adultery, to theft, to perjury, or lying, and finally coveting. So we have this, this movement of more violent to less violent, yet each of us shows the common problem is an attack against the affront of people, affronting and accosting people created in the image of God. And the heart of the ninth commandment, which we're going to look at today, is that we need to be people who maintain and promote truth with others. Let's pray before we read our text this morning. Heavenly Father, we are humbled in your presence. We thank you so much for the opportunity to come before you as a, as a body of believers, weary and broken and needing to be fed by your word. And we thank you that you have given us provision for that. Thank you that we can come to your word today and that you've given us your law, that it is good, even though it can be a burden, but that it can also point us to you and also give us an example of how we are to live. Be with us this morning to have open ears and eyes and hearts. Um, Lord, today, sanctify us by your truth, for your word is truth. In Christ's holy name, amen. So if you could turn to your Bibles to Exodus 20, verse 16. Once again, Exodus 20, verse 16, or on your tablet or device. Um, this is God's word. Um, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what is truth? 
That's a difficult question to ask. That's the question that Pontius Pilate posted to Jesus um, at his trial in John 18. What is truth? It's a question that we've probably all been faced with. We've thought about it. We are thinking about it. And if you haven't, you probably should think about it. Perhaps some of you here today aren't yet believers. You're wrestling with the concept of truth. If we're honest with ourselves, we're bombarded with untruths all the time. The news media, the way they cycle things in, they may tell partial truths but not full truths. We don't really have all the details in order to be fair and accurate. We have so much pressure to compromise morally and ethically. Maybe it's for personal gain. Maybe it's to cover for someone else. A lot of times we preserve and we promote things that do not represent or stand for truth. What about omitting or concealing specific information when giving, um, when talking to someone else? That's the way that we can conceal the truth. And that happens. We see it everywhere. In the world we live in, truth is very elusive. And the ninth commandment is centered around truth. It's not a commandment that only deals with the verbal form of lying. Usually we, we refer to it as you shall not lie. Lying is part of it, but there is much more to the ninth commandment than that. It requires an absolute and total commitment to truth by defending and promoting it. Now, I'm going to give uh, an example uh, of baseball, and, and I don't want you guys to get too sidetracked side side with the steroid discussion, um, but I am going to bring it up. From 2001 to 2004, the greatest hitter in baseball history, Barry Bonds, in my opinion, put together four of the most impressive offensive seasons in Major League Baseball history. If you were to watch a game, it was absolutely ridiculous. The guy never even got a pitch to hit all game. Everyone, he, he walked 30 to 38% of the time when he came up to the plate. People even walked him with the bases loaded because they didn't want to pitch to him. But when he actually saw a pitch that was a strike, he crushed it every time. It was insane. And during that four-year period, he put together four of the eight greatest offensive performances in Major League history, two of which were the top two over Babe Ruth and, and Ted Williams. However, as most of you all know, in 2003, he became embroiled in a ton of controversy. There was already some suspect that he was on steroids because he was huge, much bigger than he was when he first started playing. But then his trainer that had been um, working with him for physical things, it came out that the um, people in California felt that they had enough evidence to press charges and go after him for providing steroids to a number of baseball players. Well, he was Bonds' private trainer. Bonds was huge, so everyone assumed that Bonds was on steroids. So Bonds was called in to testify in this case against his trainer. When Bonds was asked, did you take steroids, his statement was, I took what I thought was flaxseed oil and rubbing balm to help with arthritis. Well, it was later revealed that Bonds admitted to unknowingly using steroids. And what turned out was what he thought was flaxseed oil 
were, were steroids, and what he thought was arthritis balm was actually something you rubbed on your body to change your chemicals so you couldn't fail a drug test. <laughs> but, the, but the point is, he still said that he unknowingly took steroids. That's what he said. Well, because of his testimony, lawmakers went after him next. They, they charged him with four counts of perjury and obstruction of justice. And over the next 12 years, Bonds fought in and out of court to try to clear his name, whether it was he should have or not, is another story. But he was finally acquitted of all charges in 2015 after multiple appeals. But his deception had hurt his family, his reputation, it tarnished his legacy. There's still debates today if Bonds will ever get into the Hall of Fame. But similar to Bonds' testimony, our passage today deals immediately with the testimony in, with a witness in a trial. So in Old Testament Israel, uh, I know this is hard for us to believe, but they, don't, they didn't have DNA evidence back then. They couldn't go around and they couldn't uh, pull fingerprints. They didn't have the nifty databases we see on CSI where a face pops up as soon as you search for them. They couldn't track someone's digital fingerprints on the computer. You, you had to have witnesses, good old-fashioned witnesses. And they, and they did not allow there to be only one witness in a case. There had to be two or more witnesses. The rule was enacted twofold. One was to protect the person that was accused so that you didn't have one rogue person trying to throw them under the bus and accuse them. It was also so that the accuser would be held accountable because their information that they were testifying would have to be corroborated by other people. So if you're lying, you've got to have more people involved, basically. We see the same principle applied in the New Testament. Matthew 18, we see that uh, in, in the context of church discipline, that there need to be two or more witnesses um, to, to go to someone. We also see it in 1 Timothy 5 regarding charges against elders, that there need to be multiple witnesses. It's for this same reason. But in Old Testament Israel, if you were a false witness, you had a lot worse penalty than what we see today. Y'all could turn over to Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 21. Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 21 is a law concerning witness. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in the office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother." So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So what happened to the person who falsely accused someone and got caught? They got the exact same punishment that that person was due. And so in some cases, to, to bear false witness was to risk your own death. 
The person who was the witness was the person who was supposed to throw the first stone on the death penalty. So it was pretty severe. It wasn't a small matter to ruin the life or the reputation of a person just because you had a personal beef or a vendetta against them. Justice required truth. And the accused was, was owed the truth regardless of whether or not they were guilty or innocent. Bearing false witness is withholding someone their rightful due and defaming someone's good name is akin to stealing a precious possession. So it was, it was very serious then to bear false witness. And most of us today, when we think about it, we say, well, you know, I, I haven't testified in a trial before. Maybe if you did, I highly doubt that you probably lied. Maybe you did. But as we've seen in our study of the commandments, the most obvious and severe forms, like I said earlier, are usually what we see. Any form of lying in Scripture is condemned. Maybe some of you have thought about that passage in Proverbs 6, which details some of the things, not all of them, but some of the things that the Lord hates. Some of the, of the seven examples listed, we have a lying tongue, a heart that devises wicked plans, a false witness that breathes out lies, and one who sows discord against brothers. Any form of dishonesty, any form, breaks the ninth commandment. So for some of us, it's going to look different. Maybe you overstate your accomplishments. Maybe you exaggerate or take pleasure in other people's failures. Some of us might tell a white lie to cover something up. Maybe we say the worst about somebody, twist people's words. Take things out of context. Speak in order to tear other people down. Or even saying something that's misleading with the intention of deceit. One judge who previously upheld Bonds's sentence before it was overthrown stated when she was asked about his vague and his misleading testimony. She said, when factually true statements are misleading or evasive, they can prevent the grand jury from obtaining truthful and responsive answers. They may therefore obstruct and impede the administration of justice. So even in the court system, they acknowledge that something that is misleading or with the intention of deceiving is wrong. So any lie that we think about with the intention to deceive is a blatant violation, but it's especially kind of digging in the wound a little bit more when it's to our neighbors, our brothers and sisters in Christ especially. We're supposed to use our words to praise God and bless others. But our speech has been so corrupted by sin, and so our tongue has the power to do great damage. In Matthew 15, Jesus instructed, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles a person, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. So when our hearts are hardened, when our hearts are hardened by sin and falsehoods, things race through our minds and roll off our tongues. It's a heart issue. James, 
James mentions the difficulty of taming the tongue. He talks about how no human being can tame it. It's a restless evil. With it, we bless our Lord, our Father, and we curse people made in God's image. Paul even warned the Corinthians about quarreling, slander, and gossip. And he told the Ephesians to get rid of slander and malice. So it's, it's a huge weight on us when we, when we come to this commandment because it's, it's, it's convicting to me. I'm confronted with all the realities of my sin, and it should, it should do that to us. But, but why is it such a big deal? Why is compromising with our honesty such a big deal? Well, first, it's an affront to the perfect character of God. He alone is truth. He represents truth. He only speaks truth. When we lie, we're defacing the image of God in people who are created in and bear his likeness. We show that we're identifying more with the great liar and deceiver Satan when we lie than we are with our God and Father, who is truth. Right? Satan helped sin and deceit to enter into the world when he asked Eve, did God actually say? So when we lie, we have, to, we have to wonder where our allegiance lying. Who are we representing? Second, our speech is a measure of our loyalty to God. It's a very accurate gauge of our personal piety. Think about it. How we speak is going to affect more and it's going to convey more how our heart really is than any claim that we can make about our faith. I think the main thing that we usually consider when we consider lying is we think about the repercussions it has in our own lives. And that's very important. There was a um, college football coach. I'm not trying to beat up on athletes um, or coaches, but there was a college football coach about 15 years ago who had about 20-some years of coaching. He'd been at Georgia Tech for many years. And he got, at that time, at that time, which was the most prestigious college football coaching job you could have in the country. I was at Notre Dame, still very prestigious. After five days on the job, someone came to him and they said, we found a discrepancy in your resume. It turned out that some reporters had gone and, and saw that he had played college football for three years, 25 years earlier or more, and went back to his school that he had attended to ask his fellow players that he was uh, supposedly playing with how exciting it was that one of their teammates was now coaching at Notre Dame. Problem was, he never played football in undergraduate school. And so he immediately said he would resign. And the Notre Dame athletic director said, whoa, 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 don't, don't rush into it. Why don't we uh, just take a step back? Were there any other discrepancies or things that you had on your resume? Well, actually, there is. I never got a master's degree at that university. In fact, I actually made up the name of that school. I only took a couple uh, graduate school classes. And at that point, George O'Leary, I didn't want to say his name, but I had to. George O'Leary lost his job, and he ended up picking up and, and coaching later on, but it completely destroyed 
any credibility that he had. Something that he had done, resume padding, 20-some years earlier to get his first coaching job. He never went back and changed it. And he got burned all those years later. We definitely have major repercussions in our lives, as he did, when we're dishonest. But one of the things that we often overlook is the incredible damage it does in the covenant community, the damage it does in the church. Think about situations that could drive wedges between brothers and sisters. Situations that people may make up gossip or spur things on that can split churches. It's happened many times before. Do we speak with a concern to uphold the welfare and the unity, the body of Christ? Do we realize that just a few stray words, maybe one word, could cause division and enmity between brothers and sisters? What about outside the church? What about dishonesty outside the church? Do you think that it probably affects people's opinion about what we do in here when we're dishonest and we don't represent ourselves with truth? A lot of people say, oh, they're no different than us. That's, that's what a lot of people assume. And it can, it can destroy our witness and impact a non-believer's opinion of the church if we can't stand for truth in all of our situations. But as, as Christians, we're to, we're to bear true witness Right? Not false witness, we're to bear true witness. And the Greek word that we have for um, to bear witness or to testify, essentially um, it means the same thing. It can be translated either way. It's even where we get the word for martyr, for people that have testified or borne witness and have been killed. We use the term witness, testify, give a testimony in the church very often. But we usually use it in a really, really, really narrow form, right? Can I get a witness? Like, we use it really narrow. But think about this. So is witnessing only telling someone about Jesus? Is that all that witnessing is? Is giving a testimony only telling someone about how God has worked in our lives, because that's usually how we define it. And I'm not saying that those aren't good things. I'm not saying that that's not part of bearing witness. But to bear witness to our triune God, it means to practice and promote truth in all situations, in all circumstances, that in in our dealings with people, that we're people of truth and that we promote truth and we point people to the one who is true. John the Baptist came to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The apostle John bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. We read in Revelation 6 about the saints who had been slain for the word of God and the witness that they had borne. Friends, bearing witness is all-encompassing. It's what we're commanded to do as we heed Jesus' final words at his ascension in Acts. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and all the ends of the earth. That's what we're called to do. But God doesn't leave us on our own to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps to be witnesses. 
He doesn't say, just try harder, give it the old college try. He empowers us. He enables us. We're God's representatives here. We have witnessed God's goodness, his gracious action in reconciling us to himself and uniting us to himself. That, because we're united to him, we can be people of truth because he is truth. He's perfect. He's true. He has a sure testimony. His work is perfect. His ways are justice. He's a God of faithfulness without iniquity. He's just. He's upright. His law is perfect, reviving the soul. His testimony is sure. His word is truth. It's trustworthy. It provides us with everything we need for salvation and growth and godliness. His word is upright, and his work is done in faithfulness. Jesus only spoke truth. He sent the spirit of truth to live within us, to guide us in understanding his word, his truth, right? Jesus' prayer, sanctify us in your truth, for your word is truth. We have his word that we can go to for truth. And lastly, and this is important, is we're created in God's image. We bear his likeness. We're his image bearers. If he is truth, there is, in him is no falsehood. And we were created to, to mirror that. When people see us, they should see that characteristic of God. And so we are to bear his likeness by being people committed to truth. So we should plainly speak and promote biblical truth. We shouldn't be suspicious of people's motives. We should attribute right motives to people when they say or do something. We should speak well of people when their names come up in conversations with others. It means that when someone is accosted and they're attacked either directly or indirectly, falsely, you don't just sit there and not say anything because you don't want to cause problems. We speak out for truth when people's names are drugged through the mud. Too often we sit back when people's reputations are being attacked and stolen away from them. We need to serve and sacrifice each other. We need to gently restore and correct one another as we see to speak the truth in love in Ephesians 4 to put away falsehood. Maybe for those of you who are students, think if you found a paper that had the questions to your quiz or to your exam before you've gotten to it. What if it had the answers on it? What, what is someone committed to truth going to do? You have to tell an adult and give it to them. If you're in college, if emails are flying around with someone has questions or answers to examinations, are you going to open that email and read it? Are you going to, are you going to delete it and ignore it that it ever happened? These are things that we're faced with. Being a true witness means that you don't fudge your um, donations when you have that goodwill receipt that's so vague. Right? What, do they just put like a mark on it? Um, but that can be tempting. Maybe some of you guys are in a situation with a boss or a coworker that's asked you to compromise in order to benefit the company or to, or to cover something up. 
Are you willing to sacrifice a promotion or possibly lose a job for the sake of honesty and integrity? We have to ask ourselves that. Has a family member asked you to lie or to omit something to prevent the truth from getting out? How are you going to handle that situation? Will you stand up for God's truth? Augustine believed that there was always an alternative to lying. The people of God, when, when we think about truth, we need to be people who speak it accurately, the way things are, not ambiguously, not in a way to conceal something or be deceitful. We need to lay our self-centered motives aside. We need to love out of a sincere love for God and our neighbor. We are members of one another. Not just members of the church, but we are members united to one another. Well, perhaps Pontius Pilate's question, what is truth, was misdirected. As he looked upon Jesus, Pilate could not see that the person standing right in front of him was the only person who ever embodied truth, who always spoke truth and always lived truth. He was standing right in front of him. He couldn't see it. The real question Pilate should have asked, who is truth? And Jesus had already given his answer. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He came to the world to bear witness to the truth. He sent his spirit of truth to teach us all truth and to mold us in all matters of truth. Are we clinging to the one who has no truth? Excuse me, who has all truth and no falsehood? Are we clinging to him? Are we heeding him? Are we reflecting his character in our lives? Are you trusting him? Are you, are you believing that he can help you to overcome your struggles to love and honor him and to promote truth in your lives so that you can love your neighbor rightly? Our prayer should be that God would grant us the grace to be his true witnesses to all the ends of the earth until, re- until he returns or until he calls us home. That should be our goal. That should be our aim. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. Uh, we thank you for your word. Um, it, does, it does cut deeply. And God, um, this morning I'm convicted of all the ways that I have failed um, in speaking truth in all matters. And we pray that you would help us to be people of truth, to reflect you, to honor you. God, we have been brought out of death and into life. We have been shown truth, we have embraced truth, and we are, we are united to truth. Help us to live as people of truth. In Christ's holy name, amen.